So my intention tonight is just to take um, this rather gruesome and brutal story in the word of God and to bring out a few points which hopefully will be helpful for us as Christian people and even for those amongst us who may not yet be Christians, uh, that we might learn something of God's ways, God's purposes, God's character, and we might go into this new week encouraged and perhaps, as Mark said, challenged as well. So this, the Gospel of Matthew is the story of the life of Jesus. And in the midst of this story, we have this insertion, we have this, this section which is about John the Baptist, the prophet. We see here that John had been beheaded because of his faith, because of his courage in standing up and, and challenging the king, Herod. The first point I'd like to look at tonight is John's courage, his considerable courage. You might have noticed tonight, I try to do what all good preachers do and have the same letters in the words. John's considerable courage. What terrible thing had John done to deserve having his head chopped off, decapitation? What had he done to deserve this? It's not a nice thing to happen to anybody. Well, John had simply challenged Herod about this great sin that he had committed. Herod, there, there are loads and loads of Herods in the Bible. They're all related. Herod's father had ten wives, and they, they all had lots of children. So it can be a bit confusing sometimes to know which Herod has been spoken of here. This is Herod Antipas, and this local ruler had fallen in love, if you can call it that. He had, he had lusted after um, the wife of his brother. And they'd met in Rome, and Herod had divorced his wife, and Herodias, this other woman, had left her husband, and they were living together. And they divorced their spouses, and they had this ungodly union. John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have her. See that in verse 4. It is not lawful for you to have her. In Luke chapter 3, verse 20, it says that, that John did not just rebuke this, but he also rebuked all the other evil things that Herod had been doing. So this, this prophet, this wild man, somehow had an audience with Herod, and he went to him, and he said, he evoked the, new, the, the law of the Old Testament, the law of God, and he said, it is not lawful, according to this law, for you to have this woman. And he also rebuked him for all the other many, many evil things that he'd done. And dear friends, the Old Testament law is very, very clear that this kind of behavior, being unfaithful to your spouse, adultery, cheating, is against the law of God. Today we looked at the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words from God. The commandment says, you shall not commit adultery. Couldn't be clearer. Leviticus 18 verse 16 says this, Do not have sexual relations with your brother's wife, for that would dishonor your brother. And again in Leviticus 20 verse 21, If a man marries his brother's wife, it is an act of impurity. He has dishonored his brother. So Herod did not have a leg to stand on when it came to the law of God. I must say here that Herod himself wasn't actually a Jew, but he was ruling over 
territory which was inhabited by Jewish people. He was familiar with Jewish things. He would have known the law of God. Herod did not have a leg to stand on. When the prophet came to him and spoke and said, what you were doing, king, and he wasn't actually a real king at all. He was just a local ruler, but he he styled himself as a king. What you were doing is not lawful according to the law of God. It is displeasing to the Lord. You have broken the law. Jesus says a similar thing in Mark chapter 10, verse 11, which actually happened after this event. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. I know these these are tough things for us to hear in a society which is so messed up in this area. But these things have always been tough for people to take, even at the time of Jesus The law of God, the standards of God are not palatable. They're not agreeable to people who love their sin. They never have been. Consider how brave Jesus was that he knew exactly what had happened to John, that John had been beheaded for his his stance, standing standing before the king and denouncing him. And Jesus, when he was asked in public about this very matter, he upheld the law just the same, knowing that his life could also be in danger. Our Lord Jesus never, ever shied away from speaking the truth of God. I don't don't really know how Herod came into contact with John, whether they had a a regular weekly meeting, like the the prime minister goes to see the queen, or perhaps he he denounced him publicly, or perhaps he had a one-off meeting, he made an appointment and went to see Herod in his palace. We often think of John as being a solitary man in the wilderness. He obviously had some dealings with the public life of the nation. Why did John challenge Herod? Was he like one of those, I don't know if you ever watched Question Time, um, one of those annoying people in Question Time that like to have their five minutes of fame and stand up and they, they lambast the kind of politicians of the day, you know, Boris Johnson, or whoever it might be, on the panel, the kind of rage. Was John just doing that, having his five minutes of fame, standing up, denouncing Herod because he just didn't like him? Well, of course, that was not the case because John was a prophet, a true prophet of God, the first prophet for hundreds of years, the first authentic voice that came straight from God, sent, a man sent by God. And think about some of the things that were said of John. We often remind ourselves of them at Advent time before Christmas. We think about the promises. He was the one called to bring the people of Israel back to the Lord their God. He was the one who was called to turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. These are all things you can read in Luke's Gospel. He was the one, John was the one, who was called to give the knowledge of salvation to God's people through the forgiveness of sins. And John was the one who preached repentance and forgiveness of sins repentance pointing to jesus he is the one who is coming after me he is the one he is the messiah he is the savior i am preparing the way for him repent get your hearts ready for him his job was to prepare the people and that those people included not just the the everyday people but also the, the highest in the land the rulers the people in positions of power John, he was courageous in confronting this wicked man who'd done so much evil and committed so much 
um, wickedness in the sight of God. John did not shy away from coming to him and also preaching to him repentance. And I believe that was the purpose of John. It was to call Herod, this king, back to repentance. Not to just to, to disgrace him publicly, but to give him a chance to repent of his sin and turn back to the Lord his God. What does the word say? Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Although Herod had John down as an enemy, actually he was a loyal servant, in a a sense, a servant of God, but also in a sense a servant of Herod, and that he came to bless him by trying to turn him from the error of his ways. There was a famous Soviet dissident who, when he died... Someone said to the president of the Soviet Union at the time, he said, you, you've lost your most loyal opponent. This man opposed many of this president's policies, but he was doing this because he wanted this man to act justly and rule righteously in the nation. And John was just the same. There are situations when Christians must stand up, have no choice but to stand up, And speak the truth. We must speak up for what is right. We must be very wise in this. We must be very, very wise. There are times to keep silent. We have to choose our battles. But you know there will be a time when you will feel that fire in your bones. And you think somebody has to speak. Somebody has to speak for the sake of this person. This person who is so lost. For the sake of the kingdom of God, for the sake of the name of Christ, somebody must speak. And I cannot keep silent, and I will speak with wisdom, with graciousness, courteously, but boldly, whatever the cost to us. And as I said, what the motivation should be for us as Christian people is not just to to denounce people for the sake of it, but because we love those people, and we love the standards of God and the law of God. We want... Christ to be known. We want to turn people from their ways that they might believe and be saved. Paul said, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? That's what always happens to people who speak the truth. Stand up, put their head above the parapet. They they make themselves the enemies of those who don't want to listen. That's exactly what John did. But John's courage to stand up in front of this king and denounce him, but also to tell him what he was doing was not lawful, is an example for us as Christians. He did not love his life so much as to shrink back from death. He didn't waver. Have you noticed when John was in prison, he must have known what was going to happen, where this was going to lead. He did not beg for his life. He did not recant. He did not go back on his words. He did not beg for his life and grovel before this wicked king. He remembered, no doubt, the words the Lord Jesus spoke when he doubted in prison. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. And that gave him hope, no doubt, until the day when the executioner opened the door of that cell and dispatched him to eternity to his reward. Did not fall away. He was courageous to the last because he knew that he was about the Lord's business and the Lord was with him. May that be true of us. That was John's considerable courage. The next one is John's completed course. John was a great man in the sight of God. Great man. 
Jesus himself speaks very highly of John. You might be thinking, what a sad and ignominious end for somebody like John, such a great man, to to have his head chopped off because of this drunken, stupid promise in a moment of madness in this horrible, raucous party in his palace. What a sad end for such a great man. Get a copy of Fox's Book of Martyrs and read the stories of Christians, courageous men, actually quite ordinary men and women, children in some cases, emboldened with the Spirit of God who stand up in front of rulers and authorities and and say, I believe in Jesus Christ. I will not turn from him. Whatever you do to me, chop my head off, burn me at the stake. will never turn away. It's very sad to read of the endings of some of these people who had illustrious careers and preached to many people. But you think about John, you think, couldn't he have had a quiet retirement somewhere after serving all these years? Couldn't he have been pensioned off to the hills of Judea, lived out his life with goats and chickens, or that if they had chickens... Could such a powerful man of God, such a gifted man, could could he not have had some kind of role in the kingdom, in the ministry of Jesus? Couldn't he have tagged along with them and preached the gospel as well? Dear friends, if anybody did not receive a reward in this life for his faithfulness to God, it was John. He didn't receive anything that this world had to offer. He lived a very ascetic life. He was poor. He lived on the margins. And then he died this horrible death. But I want to submit to you, we can see the hand of God in this episode. John suffered in the way of so many prophets and righteous men. Almost inevitably, invariably, the the prophets in the Old Testament were persecuted brutally for their ministry. For For the sake of them speaking the truth to kings and rulers, they suffered almost to a man. Not every single one, but the vast majority. In a sense, John's suffering validates him as a true prophet. This is what prophets always get. This is the reward of a prophet to suffer. And this man, like all the prophets before him, and like the prophet of prophets, the Lord Jesus coming after him, would suffer. It's almost like a validation of his, the authenticity of his ministry. John was like a lamp that burns. He gave light, and at the right time, In God's providence, he withdrew him from the scene, from the stage. His work and ministry were completed. Let me say this. Our times are in God's hands. If God should say to you, dear friend, or to any of us, I've used you, I've given you a season of usefulness and ministry, But now in my my sovereign purposes, I'm withdrawing you. I'm taking you to myself or taking you out of ministry to do something else for me. Who are we to argue with God? Sometimes God, in his wisdom, which is far higher than our wisdom, he takes the brightest and the best of his servants. He takes them to himself prematurely before time. People say, oh, only the good die young. Well, that's, that's not really true at all, but... God often takes his servants young, prematurely. Think of Jim Elliot. Jim Elliot was only 28 years old, a missionary. I think it was in Ecuador, wasn't it? He got speared to death by a load of tribesmen and his friends. Young men, fresh out of Bible college, full of zeal for the Lord, wanting to make a difference 
to reach these men who'd never heard of Jesus Christ for the gospel. They were speared to death. Lord, what's going on? These bright young men, great servants of the gospel. And yet we, we read the story of Jim's wife, Elizabeth, who went there, and many of those people were converted to Christ. And she, she befriended those that had killed her husband, and a great work for the Lord was done there that might not have been done had Jim and his friends not been killed. God can save with many or with few. Think about the story of Gideon. God needs no human help to fulfill his purposes. Chooses to use people, doesn't have to use people. He raises up one, he withdraws another. We should submit to God's right to do this. Whether it happens to us, whether it happens to someone that we love, someone that we know about, say, Lord, you know why you're doing this. You've taken this person to yourself. You're withdrawing this person. Your purposes, your kingdom continue. Notice in in verse 12, John's disciples came and took his body and buried it after this horrible murder. It's right to honour the memory of people that serve God faithfully. And I think that's what the disciples were doing when they buried his body. They wanted to give it a decent burial. We should honour the memory of Mrs. Gates and Jim Elliott and all sorts of people that have gone before us. But we should also remember that none of us are indispensable. And God can easily raise up more people. And God has his ways and purposes. God's work will go on unhindered. John could have said, along with Paul in Acts 20, verse 24, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. John was a man who fought the good fight, finished the race, and kept the faith. He was faithful unto death, and he went on to receive his heavenly reward. As sad as John's death was, it was a sad event. It's not the real tragedy of this story. John went to get to receive his reward. The real tragedy is Herod. We're going to look at Herod now, a couple of lessons from him. So, Anya, please. Let's look, first of all, at Herod's ambivalent attitude towards John. We're told in verse 5 that Herod wanted to kill John. But he was afraid of the people because they considered him a prophet. In verse 9, when he was tricked by Herodias into doing this we read that he was distressed he was unhappy about having to do this and John Herod had a very strange mixed kind of attitude towards John as it seems to us at times he wanted to get rid of him at times he wanted to kill him but there was something about this wild prophet that Herod was drawn to that made him hesitate to order his murder which he could have done just like that at any point this was partly due to the fact that Herod was, was um, afraid of the people who held that John was a prophet. Um, think how many thousands of people had gone out to John and been baptized by him in the Jordan River. And we can assume that these people knew that John had been imprisoned unjustly. What would have happened, thought Herod, what would happen if all these people found out that I had John murdered? There could, could be an uprising against me. And that was the last thing he wanted. But I think John's, um, Herod's reluctance to kill John was more than just about self-preservation. 
He wasn't just afraid of the people. That was part of it. That wasn't everything. In Mark chapter 6, we read a more detailed account of this story. We're told that it was Herodias who was the one who wanted to kill John. But Herod feared John and protected him. He knew he was a righteous and holy man. Herod recognized something unusual about John. If you think about it, in many ways he was everything that Herod wasn't. He was a man of integrity. He was a man of godliness. He had the courage of his convictions. There was a genuine godliness about him that wasn't apparent in the religious elite, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. There was something different about John. He had the the stamp of a true prophet about him. I think perhaps there was something in Herod that grudgingly respected John as the only man in the palace, perhaps the 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 only man in the land, apart from Jesus, who didn't actually fear him. The only one with enough courage and loyalty to tell him the truth. And it says in Mark, I think it's in Mark, that, that John, um, Herod was drawn to John. He liked to listen to him, even though he was puzzled by what he said. That's just a really strange kind of mixture, isn't it? On one hand, he wants to kill him. On the other hand, he tries to protect him. It's really mixed up. He's fascinated by what he says. He doesn't really understand it. His wife's probably in his ear all the time saying, you know, be a king. Be a true man. Kill this troublesome. Who will rid me of this troublesome prophet? And Herod puts him on death row indefinitely, trying to protect him because he knows he's an innocent man. What a mixed up mind Herod must have had. It's a bit like the relationship between Saul and David in the Old Testament. You see Saul sort of vacillating between anger at David and jealousy and hatred on one hand. And on the other hand, he he has this almost like moments of affection and remorse when he wants to save David. And he acknowledges that he's a good man who's anointed by God. John was an absolute enigma for Herod. He didn't know what to make of him, much less what to do with him. So as king, he, he was, imagine the situation that, that Herod found himself in. He couldn't just let John continue denouncing him. That was dangerous. It was bad for his reputation, what was left of it. So he had him imprisoned, but he was reluctant to kill him because he knew he was a righteous man. It would, would trouble his conscience to kill him. And also, if he killed him, the people might revolt against him. Why couldn't Herodias just let, be content to let John rot in prison? You can imagine him in the deepest, darkest part of the, the palace, in the dungeon down below. Wasn't that enough for this wicked woman? For him just to, to lay there and starve in that rat-infested, gloomy dungeon? Well, if you think about it, when, when all their merrymaking was going on upstairs, John was down there in the back of her mind. She always knew that he was there. Somewhere in that palace, John was there. And she wanted him permanently silenced for the sake of revenge, but also for the sake of permanently cutting off this voice of conscience. Probably she'd also noticed that Herod was spending more and more time, I'm speculating a bit, going down to the dungeon. Where's where's the king? Oh, he's down in the dungeon talking to John, listening to John. Was he being influenced by John? You can imagine these kind of thoughts going through Herodias' mind. You know, who's he listening to? Be like me going home and Anya finds me listening to some kind of you know, Muslim teaching at home. She's like, what's going on? What are you listening to? Also, if John kept preaching, there was a chance that Herod might actually turn from his ways, put Herodias out and get rid of her, and that would be the end of her. 
This woman, this scheming, manipulative woman, waited for her chance to strike. So, John, so Herod had this very ambivalent, weird attitude, which you sometimes get even amongst non-believers towards Christians. On one hand, they see you as a threat. On the other hand, they see you as almost like fascinating, like an enigma, drawn to you. Let's look at the next point, Anya. So Herod's acute anxiety. I'm not going to say much about this. Notice how Herod, how much of his behavior was driven by fear. His behavior was completely irrational, inconsistent, just what you'd expect from a tyrant, like so many tyrants and bad rulers, completely inconsistent, mixed-up behavior. Weak and insecure man. Uneasy lies the head that wears the crown. And Herod's head certainly lay uneasy, probably 24-7. So he was afraid of John. Presumably that's why he had him arrested, because he was stirring up the people in Herod's mind. He was afraid of the people themselves. He was afraid of an uprising. In chapter 9, we read that he was afraid of his guests at the um, dinner party. Because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he was afraid of losing face in front of his guests. Presumably, he was afraid of his wife as well, to the extent he couldn't refuse her request. The only thing that Herod wasn't afraid of was the one thing that he should have been afraid of, or the one person he should have been afraid of, which was God. Fear of man is a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe, says Proverbs 29. And that definitely proved to be the case for Herod. Think how unhappy he was. What a slave you are. If you're afraid of people more than you are afraid of God, what a slave you are to that. Tossed here and there all the time by the opinions of people. What are they going to think of me? This could happen, this could happen. Let me just comment briefly on this. Don't let fear of man, fear of people lead you into sin. Fear of man will lead you into compromises, It may lead you into into all kinds of sticky, difficult situations. It may lead you to unwise courses of action. You will never be happy, you will never be secure if you do not fear God, but you fear man. Let's move on to the next point, which is Herod's atrocious actions. I don't know how you like to celebrate your birthday. Most of us have a cake and some sausage rolls and those little cocktail sticks with a piece of cheese and pineapple on them and a bit of Boney M or something like that, or Motown or something like that. Herod wasn't into any of that stuff. He liked bacchanalian orgies and revelry, the kind of revelry that was condemned for the Israelites in the Old Testament, pagan revelry with all kinds of shameful carryings on, wicked behavior, drunkenness, all kinds of promiscuity, no doubt. You can just imagine the foolish talk and the raucous laughter echoing through the walls of that palace. And Herodias knew that it was time for her to make her move. So I'm not going to talk too much about this, but you, we can assume that it was her who prompted her daughter, who could have been probably 12 or 14 years old, quite young, to do this dance. And you can imagine this wasn't ballet, this wasn't an edifying dance, this would have been a dance to excite a bunch of dirty old men in the palace, putting it bluntly. And Herod is so impressed by this, so pleased by this, that he wants to make some kind of grand gesture, some lavish gesture to 
Herodias, his daughter, his stepdaughter. Remember this um, verse from the Bible. It says this, don't let your mouth lead you into sin. How many times have our mouths led us into sin? Said rash and stupid things that we should not have said, unwise things. And Herod makes this really rash promise to Herodias' daughter. He says, you know, well, I'll give you whatever you ask. Herod was acting like he was some great king of Israel. He was a little local ruler, not much better than a gangster, really. False pretender. He's under the Romans, who could have removed him at any time. He makes this lavish promise. I'll give you half my kingdom. Be like Bill Gates, whoever, saying, I'll give you half my business. It could be proverbial. It might not mean literally he was prepared to give half his kingdom. It wasn't really his to give anyway. But in any case, he makes this grand gesture, promise. And you can imagine all the, all the people sitting there, all like, impressed by the king. But he hadn't bargained, had he, what was going to be asked of him. Herodias had him exactly where she wanted him. So she asked for John's head. What a gruesome thing to have a decapitated, bleeding head on a plate as a kind of trophy. I mean, they, they were brutal days they lived in, but that was still a, a rather gruesome, horrible thing, wasn't it, to ask for? And suddenly, Herod is put in a situation much like Pontius Pilate a short time after, where you've got this ruler who's supposed to uphold justice, and he's faced with a choice. Do I do the right thing? Do I free an innocent man? Or do I give in to the wishes of, of wicked people? With a heavy heart, and you know, he was distressed, with a heavy heart, he'd been trapped. He'd been, as we say in Essex, he'd been done up like a kipper. He had no choice. Well, he had a choice, but he, he didn't do the right thing, did he? And he had John executed. And that was the end of the matter. John was killed. It was all over. Or was it? I bring to you two points of application before we close, which I hope we can learn from. One is this. Trying to silence the truth is dangerous for your soul. The great tragedy was that, that God had given Herod a chance to repent. He had sent him a voice of conscience in John. John challenged him. For a season, a brief season, Herod had the chance to listen to John, listen to the preaching of the word no doubt to listen to the, the good news of Jesus. But when he had him killed, when he had him murdered, not only had he broken another commandment, you know, he'd already committed the one about adultery and covetousness, he'd also committed the, the um, sin of murder, but he silenced the one voice which could have saved him, the one voice which spoke to him the truth, the one voice which could have prevented him going down that destructive course which leads to hell. Let me apply this in this way. I think this is a valid application. In a similar way, a person may be challenged in their conscience about something in their life which is not right. A non-Christian, you might be a non-Christian, you might know a non-Christian who comes to church, who hears the gospel, who hears the good news of Jesus, hears the call, repent and believe, have your sins washed away, believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved. Turn from your sin, repent, turn to the Lord Jesus. They hear it, they're open to listen. You think, this is exciting. This person is not far from the kingdom of God. Or it could be a wayward Christian, somebody, I've known people like this, countless people, 
somebody who professes the Lord Jesus, who's walked with God's people, hear the word of God challenging them about something very specific in their life, which is not right before God. And they listen, and they move. There might even be a degree of remorse, and a degree of them being emotionally touched by this. So they hear hear a powerful sermon, and say, oh yes, that's, that's about me. And it's so important at times like that, when you hear the word of God being preached, not to postpone it, not to procrastinate, put it off. Say, I'll keep on listening, I'll keep on listening, but to act, to strike while the iron is hot and to obey that voice and not to silence that voice. I've known some of those, Christians, those, those non-Christians who've heard the word of God. They come along, they, they're keen, they seem serious about the things of God, and then suddenly they just withdraw. They don't come back to church anymore. You never see them again. You, you send them a message. They don't want to contact you again. They don't want to hear from you again. They don't want to hear the word of God. They don't want any contact with Christians. They've silenced the voice that could challenge them. They've silenced the voice, the word of God. And the same is true for those Christians that I've known over the years who have been challenged and haven't responded in repentance and have just started withdrawing from the fellowship of God's people and haven't wanted to hear the word of God and have even in some cases completely turned away from their faith because they didn't listen to the word that was preached to them. That's a very, very dangerous thing spiritually to do. That's what Herod did. He cut off the one voice that could save him, the the word of God, the faithful man speaking that word. Don't let that be you. If you hear the voice of God, do not harden your heart. Repent, turn to him. Today is the day of salvation. If you're a wayward Christian, I'm not thinking of anybody here particularly, but if you are, turn to him and put right those things in your life. He is gracious, he will forgive you. But don't put it off and don't silence that voice. Because let me say this to you, I guarantee you will not want to hear the word of God if you're in love with your sin. But you need to hear it, you need to respond to it. That was the first point. The second point is this, trying to silence the truth does not make it go away. John's death reminds us of a few things. First thing is you cannot get rid of a guilty conscience. Let me say it's very difficult to get rid of a guilty conscience. Herod's story is a warning to anyone who thinks that you can commit some some sin or do some dark deed and just forget about it and live your life and it will never come back to haunt you and you could just package that off somewhere in the recesses of the past and it will never come back to haunt you again. You just get get on and enjoy your life. I think um, Herod was very, very troubled by John's murder. Look in verse 1 here. When he heard the reports about Jesus, he said to his attendants, this is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. People were putting forward all sorts of ideas about Jesus. Some said he's Elijah. Some said he's like one of the prophets. Herod straight away, his mind said, no, this is John. I know this is John, risen from the dead. quite interesting just as just as an aside that Herod was was open to the possibility of a man a righteous man being raised from the dead we 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 don't know for sure it's possible that that Herod had links with the Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection but Herod obviously had no doubt in his mind death could not keep its hold on him now Herod had a fearful superstitious mind and he was probably deeply troubled the idea that John had been raised from, from, dead, from the dead with enhanced miraculous powers. 
as it happens, we know he was wrong. It wasn't John. It was Jesus. But you could just imagine the state of his mind to even imagine that. The man, that, that righteous man that I killed has come back to haunt me. He wasn't, he wasn't happy, was he, that, uh, this idea? Oh, how wonderful, John's come back. He was terrified, I think. By faith, he continues to speak, even though he's dead. And no doubt those words of John rang out in Herod's mind again and again and again. It says in Luke 9, verse 7, he was perplexed. He wanted to see Jesus to, to make sure it wasn't John. Imagine being in that predicament that you've got a righteous man that you've killed because of your own lust, your own stupidity. And yet he comes back again. You can't get rid of him. Whatever you do, you can't keep him down. He comes back and he troubles you and he disturbs you. How do you respond to a situation like that? As I said, don't think that you can commit some act of wickedness and just get away with it and leave it. And never let it trouble you again. It won't leave you in peace. How many people are carrying around skeletons in their cupboards? I say this with all sensitivities, as much sensitivity as I can muster. Skeletons in their cupboards, things that people haven't dealt with from the past, dark secrets, guilty things they've done. They try and parcel away and forget about, but are still there, still haunting them, still troubling them. And I say this with sensitivity as well. One example, I... I've heard um, anecdotes and stories about women who've had abortions and they deeply regretted that. And all their lives they've been haunted by these things. Sin will not give you any peace unless you confess it and receive forgiveness and grace. That's the only way to deal with it. Skeletons in your cupboards to confess it to the Lord and seek forgiveness. Remorse and guilt are not enough. You need to come to the Lord and receive healing and forgiveness if you confess your sins. And God is very merciful to forgive sins. And let me say this, if you feel quite sorry for Herod, actually, Herod didn't actually change at all after this episode. When Jesus was brought before him, before his trial, during his trial, Herod had a chance to do things differently. He could have uh, respected Jesus And he could have set Jesus free or asked him to be set free, but he mocked him and ignored him and sent him away to Pilate to be crucified. Herod had this remorse, he had this guilt, but it hadn't changed him. And there's a warning there for us as well. Second point, just quickly. Trying to silence the truth, you can't get rid of a guilty conscience. You can't stop the growth of God's kingdom. Over the centuries, many regimes have tried to suppress and even wipe out the church of Jesus Christ. Think of the land of Albania. We've got friends who work in Albania as missionaries. The government of that, of that country at one point tried to suppress the church to the point of trying to eradicate it completely and boasted there's not a single Christian in Albania, which wasn't actually the case. There were Christians. I imagine North Korea is quite similar. Any godless regime which tries to silence the voice of truth to to crush the church of Jesus Christ will never succeed the death of John was no hindrance to God's purposes was it Jesus came and he preached and he fulfilled the work that God gave him to do persecution of the church is tragic and it's difficult and it's painful but it's no hindrance to God's purposes 
I will build my church, says Jesus, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Those who oppose the church and the kingdom will only find themselves fighting against God. They may appear to be winning, as Herod appeared to be winning when he had John murdered, but actually it doesn't actually solve anything. The church of Jesus Christ continues and it grows and God goes about his work and he raises up new people and new servants to carry on that work. It's like King Canute trying to hold back the tide. You can't hold back the church of Jesus Christ. John may have been dead, the work went on. We come and go, churches come and go, the cause of the gospel continues. Finally, final point, you can't get rid of Jesus. Sounds obvious, doesn't it? You can't get rid of Jesus. Don't even try to do that. John's death was no doubt a reminder to our Lord about where his own ministry was heading. Like John, he would suffer unjustly for speaking the truth. John's death was, I don't think being beheaded is a nice way to die, but it's quite a quick way to die. And Jesus' death wasn't quick and instant. It was agonizing, gruesome, horrible, long, prolonged. John's death, John, John just died and that was it. Jesus died as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. What Jesus suffered was far worse than what John suffered. He was subjected to the wrath of God. The judgment that was, was upon us was poured out upon him. It should have been ours. We, we looked last week about the prophet being rejected by his own people. Just as John and all the prophets were rejected and persecuted, they tried to get rid of God's final messenger, his own son, the prophet of prophets. God's final revelation to his people, they tried to get rid of him. They tried to silence him. They used every tool at their disposal to get rid of Jesus. They killed him. He was definitely dead. Put him in a tomb, sealed it with a massive stone, put a guard on there. What more could they have done to get rid of Jesus, to silence him for good? They just hoped he would go away. That would be the end of the matter. That would be the end of Jesus' followers. They would be scattered. They would disperse. That would be the end of this Jesus movement. But of course, as we know, that wasn't the end of Jesus, was it? Unlike John, I mean, Herod was wrong about John rising from the dead, but Jesus really did rise from the dead. He burst out of that tomb in glorious life, resurrection. And after that, you know, they tried to suppress the church, but his followers went everywhere. They preached the gospel. And it spread across the world like wildfire. Nobody could stop it. Let me say this as well. People do that today. They try to get rid of Jesus. You, you might be one of them. I don't know. They try to get rid of him. They try to package him off and ignore him and reject him and say, well, Jesus has got nothing to say to me. I don't believe in this Jesus. Those people that crucified Jesus, one day they'll stand before him in judgment. The tables will be turned. Those that he stood before will now be standing before him, begging for mercy and will find none. Left it too late, seek him. Too many people try to get rid of Jesus by ignoring him or rejecting him. They hear the gospel, they dismiss it. They fill their lives with distractions. I've got a particular message. I, I know nobody here is probably in that category, but I don't know if anybody will hear this. I've got a particular message for young people that have grown up in churches. I've got a real heart for these people that have turned away from the gospel, that have grown up, 
that have packaged Jesus off somewhere and said, well, I'm putting that away with my childhood toys up in the loft. You're Jesus, the, the faith of my parents. I don't want to hear any more. My cousin said that to my aunt, apparently. He said, I, 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 now I've left home, gone to university, I don't want to hear any more about you, Jesus. I don't want to go to church anymore. That's it. I don't want to hear the word of God. You can package Jesus off. You can ignore him all the days of your life until you breathe your final breath. But one day, certainly, just as surely as night follows day, you will be confronted by Jesus again. You can't just do that. You can't, you can't get rid of him for good. You will have your meeting with Jesus. You will have your day before him. Sooner or later, all of us will see him. The question is, will you see him as judge? Or will you see him as your saviour? Will it be someone you try to get rid of, try to ignore, try to reject? Or will it be someone that you welcome, that you listen to, that you received? Be reconciled to God. I pray that we would be like John as, as individual Christians, as a church. We would be fearless, courageous, uncompromising servants of the living God. For however long he has us here in Brighton, in this world, we would burn with that gospel passion make him known, to point to Jesus. When he withdraws us, our time is finished. That's fine. We'll go to be with him. We'll go to receive our reward, whatever the cost. Let's pray.